My name is Mariam Gagosashvili. I'm a program officer at Global Fund for Women for Europe and Central Asia. I come from Georgia, which is a small country in uh, Eastern Europe or Western Asia, depending on what's the perspective. But it is one of the countries that was part of the Soviet Union together with Ukraine. Since the early 90s or even um, end of 80s, Global Fund has been working in Europe and Central Asia very actively. And more and more as the years went uh, by, it focused its attention on Eastern Eastern Europe and Central Asia. So oh, throughout these years, uh, we have supported uh, women's rights organizations that emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union and started to focus on the gender equality uh, agenda and also w supported a lot of peace movements in the region. Um, for instance, in the 90s, where the war took place in former Yugoslavia in the Balkans, um, Global Fund for Women supported many women's rights organizations uh, uh, that were supporting um, uh, survivors of sexual violence in the conflict, uh, also uh, women uh, that were experiencing other kinds of human rights violations, and very importantly, women who just wanted to stop the war and advocate for peace and uh, uh, as a result of all this work, uh, now uh, former Yugoslavia, the Balkan region, has one of the strongest women's peace movement in the region. And similarly, in uh, South Caucasus, uh, where um, uh, also ethnic conflicts uh, took place after the collapse of the Soviet Union between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and also within Georgia, my country, we had two ethnic conflicts and the civil war in the 90s. Now, Global Fund has done a lot of work supporting the women's organizations, uh, working with internally displaced persons and working across uh, the um, divides and across the border uh, to support citizen diplomacy and um, support uh, maintenance of human relationships uh, uh, in the context of really growing animosity and hostility between people. Uh, so our work uh, has been concentrated, the Global Fund's work uh, across the, uh, the globe internationally has been focused on different areas of women's rights and more specifically we're focusing on three uh, issues. Uh, it, uh, one of them is uh, zero violence, so ending all the forms of violence against women um, and girls, economic and political empowerment and sexual and reproductive health and rights. In terms of the regions, we work in uh, Europe and Central Asia, we work in Middle East and North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, generally the whole Asia and Pacific, and Latin America and Caribbean. Define the region that you're the program advisor for. As you know, it's a really huge, diverse region with maybe around 55 countries, some de facto independent states, I don't know, numerous languages and religions, which means also that this region is very complex and very diverse. We have uh, Western Europe, Northern Europe, we have Eastern Europe, we have Central Europe, we have Southeast Europe, we have uh, countries uh, like Georgia, which belong to multiple sub-regions, maybe even Middle East and uh, maybe West Asia. Uh, and we have Central Asia, which um, politically, historically, culturally is much more connected with Eastern Europe because of its uh, Soviet history. Uh, however, they are geographically located in Asia. 
Right now, we prioritize certain subregions because of several reasons. We work more in the Balkans, former Yugoslavia. Uh, we work in South Caucasus, which is Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Central Asia, which has five countries, but we specifically prioritize Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan and the former Soviet Eastern Europe, uh, specifically Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, Moldova, and in, within Russia we specifically focus on North Caucasus, uh, which, is, um, which is a number of uh, autonomous republics within Russia bordering South Caucasus. Um, but uh, within those impact areas, uh, we are trying to be very responsive to the situation in the region reacting to the situation and reacting to the challenges that are now um, really burning. For instance, sexual violence in conflict and in the post-conflict countries. And we have a number of conflict and post-conflict countries, frozen conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, inside Georgia, now uh, active conflict uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, also frozen conflict between Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And in the Balkans, we have a community of countries which has resolved the conflict and there is peace between these countries. But now the huge uh, levels of sexual violence that took place in the 90s have still not been resolved and women are fighting to access justice. And uh, that's, uh, that's what we want to support. Also, another uh, challenge is this foreign agent type of legislations that is you know, spreading across the region, very much influenced by Russia. There are a number of countries that have very restricted civil society uh, laws limiting their access to foreign funding, but also limiting uh, the type of activities they can carry out within their countries, even with local resources. Um, and they operate under really uh, a lot of scrutiny of the government, have to undergo different, uh, very long and uh, cumbersome um, uh, audits, and sometimes have to pay large fines. Uh, and uh, this uh, environment is uh, really disabling uh, the civil society work and activism. So our priority is to support uh, the women's movement to sustain itself uh, by enabling uh, access to funding uh, and channeling resources to them, uh, but also coming up with creative ways how to uh, give them resources because the access to foreign funding is so restricted. Uh, it also in entails some capacity building on uh, local philanthropy development uh, so that uh, organizations can become self-sustainable in their local contexts. Mm, security is a huge issue, safety and security of women human rights defenders and activists because of this environment um, and really repressive environment. They are really under attack often from government but also from by the from the side of the non-state actors, uh, for instance, uh, extremist, uh, nationalist extremist and religious fundamentalist groups. So a third area of our priority is to uh, counter the, re the growing religious fundamentalism in the region. And by, the, by them, I mean Christian, Orthodox, Catholic and Muslim fundamentalisms, all very present and strong in the region and growing. Uh, they, uh, together with authoritarian regimes, are uh, absolutely posing huge uh, threats uh, to uh, women human rights defenders uh, that manifest themselves in uh, physical attacks, death threats, hate uh, speech, and uh, encouragement of hate, hate crimes. Uh, so um, another area that we really 
want to focus on is um, uh, decreasing homophobia and um, transphobia that is also growing in the region together with all these trends really influenced by the, uh, uh, the strengthening of religious fundamentalisms and nationalism. Mm, and finally, uh, we, uh, what we, uh, a specific thing about this region is that women have been in the labor force and have been uh, employed uh, for, for decades and that is not anything new for women. Uh, however, th what we have not achieved yet is getting women into power positions, whether in uh, the labor market or in the politics. So that will be another priority to support women's meaningful representation in leadership and governance uh, in the politics or in, uh, in their uh, jobs, basically. One dimension of this will be also to support women at the peace negotiations and uh, really actively involved in uh, conflict resolution in all of these subregions which have frozen conflicts. So in terms of improving the lives of women, you're seeing more repression as the extremists get hold and possibly Russia has more and more influence over the countries that were under their umbrella of the Soviet Union. Do you feel that it has to get worse before it gets better? Mm -hmm. And for common people, are you seeing more support for women's issues? I can't really say that things were much better in the 90s or during the Soviet time for women. Uh, it was a different reality and different challenges. However, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when civil society started to form and women started to organize uh, around their issues and started to demand their rights, there were significant gains uh, that were made, especially in the area of um, economic empowerment in the area of legislation uh, change and to an extent implementation. For instance, violence, uh, domestic violence became stopped being a taboo issue and uh, people started to speak out against it and um, there were laws developed and now women more or less have access to some uh, domestic violence uh, services and hotlines, most of the time provided by civil society organizations. But I still want to say that some shifts were made by the women's movements throughout the region. And I think uh, it reached a point when it became threatening for the major institutions that hold power in the region, which is religious institutions, governmental institutions, institutions um, like groups of people that promote traditional family values and so on, they started to realize that the women's movement and the social movements were threatening their status quo. So I think some of the things that is happening now in the region is a backlash against the gains that have already been achieved. For example, a very simple example is abortion. Uh, as you probably know, the Soviet Union had some of the most progressive abortion legislations However, now the uh, religious fundamentalists and different conservative political forces are starting to attack uh, the women's right to have uh, safe and legal abortion. So that's also another for like another manifestation of this backlash that's happening. And some countries already changed the legislation to limit women's access to abortion. Um, so we definitely think the, you know see that there is a, a level of backlash. And uh, there is a big, in relation to um, 
increased strength of women's movements, there is also increased number of people who support the women's rights agenda and gender equality, the principle of the gender equality, and generally become more um, uh, respectful to human rights and uh, such values as uh, equality, non-discrimination, non-violence. So I think that uh, more and more people are becoming supportive of this and however societies are being very very polarized there there is a group of people that is very influenced by the nationalist uh, fundamentalist uh, views and conservative values and uh, unfortunately it it really um, translates into a lot of clashes between, even between citizens. If you look at the social media, so many fights and debates are happening. Maybe this is also healthy. Maybe this is also part of the social change. And as you said, maybe it will get better if the women's rights groups and other human rights groups are able to successfully resist this backlash. And that's why what is a Global Fund's priority in the region, to support the movement, maintain its uh, gains that it has already made, and to also support them to achieve new victories. We seem to have a polarization going on in this country as well, so we can understand, but we don't have the history of being such a new country, new to independence. What are some of the creative things that women are doing in response to this increased repression? In some countries, women are operating really underground, women's organizations, because of the general criminalization. And they really use uh, social media to meet each other, organize different forums, uh, or even Facebook and similar social media that exist there. They meet in the apartments of the, their friends, they meet in the bars and cafes. Uh, so there is a lot of informal organizing happening. They don't get registered, they don't even fundraise because they want to maintain their autonomy and political autonomy, including uh, not to be influenced by external agenda and also not to threaten themselves. They also sometimes in countries like uh, Russia, in its North Caucasus region, where women's organizations are pressured by the government, by the religious law, and by the customary law of North Caucasus, they sometimes have to come up with very non-threatening activities like sewing classes and uh, coffee uh, discussions. And in reality, it's a lot of political work that is happening there uh, during these gatherings, but it doesn't look suspicious uh, for the government and other uh, you know, forces. So um, A lot can be discussed while you're knitting or sewing. Yes, yes, for sure, you know. And um, there's also a lot of creative ways for them to accept foreign funding. We don't want to be discouraged by the foreign agent legislations, and we don't want to say goodbye to the region and step out. We really want to continue supporting. So we have uh, used Western Union, we have used bank accounts in other countries, and so many other things. Um, it's maybe um, not in a very repressive environment in the former Yugoslavia. So after all these years of activism and mobilizing in the peace movement. Uh, finally, uh, this year in May 2015, uh, the hundreds of women from the whole region gathered in Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, who are survivors of sexual violence, of conflict, uh, in conflict, and they basically testified openly about their experiences and experiences of you know, their friends and sisters and um, mothers and 
and so on. And it was uh, basically a women's court with the goal to break silence around uh, the, this very taboo issue and also direct attention to the atrocities, really huge amount of violence and unbelievable forms of violence happening. Very important was that women were present from all the countries. So it was also important to develop a sense of solidarity and to strengthen it, uh, no matter what is their ethnicity or religion, to really go beyond that and relate to each other as women. And one of the outcomes, I think, of this meeting uh, and generally of uh, the whole movement uh, uh, in the Balkans uh, for peace and women's rights was that Croatia this year adopted a law and uh, unprecedented law in the region uh, to provide significant uh, financial compensation to survivors of sexual violence during the wars. Tell me a little bit about your own state of Georgia. How have things changed since the 90s? Georgia and Ukraine are one of the very few countries in the former Soviet Union who are trying to resist uh, Russia's uh, imperialist goals and influence. Um, in the 90s, it was really tough uh, tough transition from socialism to market economy uh, for like there was a lot of poverty um, economic system completely collapsed everybody was unemployed my parents everybody I knew was poor and uh, we didn't have any electricity any heating any hot water um, we had to just use some gas lamps and um, uh, candles and we had to be very creative on how we sustain ourselves uh, at the same time we had a civil war because there were a lot of political tensions within the country and lots of uh, political forces uh, attacking each other and trying to gain power uh, meanwhile, uh, two, uh, two regions in Georgia, uh, uh, we, very similar to situation in Ukraine now with Crimea, uh, two uh, regions uh, that have a different ethnicity uh, than Georgian people, uh, Abkhaz, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, they, they were, there were some tensions with these regions that developed into, uh, into ethnic wars. Uh, very much supported and fueled by Russia and uh, eventually after those wars ended uh, both uh, breakaway regions uh, proclaimed independence however they were um, only three to four countries uh, that are member of United Nations uh, ac accepted them and uh, um, yeah accepted them as independent recognized their independency um, one of them is, of course, Russia. Uh, since then, Russia has maintained really uh, tough control over those uh, breakaway regions, de facto independent states of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and uh, which means uh, basically that the borders with Georgia are absolutely closed. Uh, the uh, residents there have Russian passports. Uh, they use Russian currencies. Um, they only have relationship with Russia and those like two, three countries that have recognized them uh, official state language is Russian. So uh, basically these uh, frozen conflicts continue till now. They have never been resolved. And furthermore, in 2008, Russia bombed Georgia, many of its towns, including the capital uh, Tbilisi, um, with a goal to uh, completely cut uh, Georgia's um, 
relationship with Abkhazia and South Ossetia and the result was like hundreds of civilians uh, that died, thousands, many thousands of uh, uh, displaced people. So basically we had the first wave of uh, internally displaced people in the 90s and now after 2008 the second wave and they still, many of them still live in the IDP camps unlike Ukraine we actually built IDP camps and people still live there with the IDP status which is horrible considering some of them uh, have been displaced for 20 years um, and still have that status and there is like no no perspective of going back I don't think these conflicts will be resolved anytime soon and yeah the Russia has played a major role uh, and the peacekeepers uh, the so-called peacekeepers which is Russian military troops are around the borders they are protecting their citizens because these people have Russian passports and almost daily or monthly those military troops are moving the border uh, further and further into Georgia which means they're annexing more and more <laughs> territories and unfortunately the new government is not very outspoken and power powerful and ha has not been effective in doing anything to resist this occupation. Is your current government sympathetic to Russia? It is very hard to tell. I think uh, explicitly they cannot say that because they knew after 2008 uh, Russia was not very much uh, favored by uh, people in Georgia. So they could not really explicitly say that. But in comparison to the previous government, it's much more, um, how to say, much more loyal or much more um, open towards uh, revising and rethinking this relationship. And uh, the the person who was the leader of um, the new government, uh, first as a prime minister, and now he, he has stepped back but he maintains the informal power uh, over the whole new government. He is a Georgian who became uh, very, very rich in Russia, basically an oligarch uh, with billions and billions of dollars. And uh, he came back uh, from Russia to Georgia to basically start a party, and he achieved his goal. He took over the new government. So he definitely has very strong links with Russia, Russian governments. It is impossible for anybody, especially a Georgian person, to become that rich in Russia without being very come very much connected with the government and with the mafia there. So it's very clear that the link is link is there and that is very concerning for uh, people in Georgia who really don't want to be aligned with Russia. So maybe something uh, like what happened in Ukraine might happen in Georgia as well. We don't know. This is worrying people. Yes, it is. But people are again divided, talking about polarization. I feel that uh, Russia and Russian um, pro-Russian forces inside Georgia have done a good job of uh, uh, propaganda. Uh, some citizens of Georgia, they start to be manipulated by them uh, and start to say that, well, Russia is also majority Christian Orthodox country. It has been our neighbor and brother for so many years. Uh, very, very troubling. What do you see for the future of Georgia and for many of the states that were part of the former Soviet Union? More and more countries are really becoming under Russia's influence. 
direct annexation or occupation or more indirect economic political influence. And unfortunately, looking at the situation right now, how like Kyrgyzstan that always had a really strong civil society and was maintaining uh, relative independence from Russia, now has the foreign agent bill under review in the parliament. Another anti-gay propaganda law, which is also one of the laws that Russia came up with and adopted. So it is very scary to see countries that used to be more independent from Russia are moving more towards it. Russia also created the Eurasian Customs Union and Eurasian Asian Economic Union, uh, basically uh, mimicking a European Union and providing some kind of alternative mechanism for economic exchange to former Soviet states. And it is literally forcing and pressuring countries to enter. And if you enter that union, you can't sign the EU association agreement. It was very similar in Armenia, which is also struggling to maintain its independence from Russia, although it is very strongly influenced by it still they had to choose whether to sign the EU association agreement or to enter the Eurasian Union. And the government was literally forced to enter the Eurasian Union, although people were very unhappy and uh, they expressed their discontent, but they didn't do what Ukrainians did. There was no revolution that took place. So Now they are still trying to sort out the relationships with the European Union, but it seems that there are less and less countries in the region that are able to maintain their autonomy and independence from Russia. Do people outside the Ukraine, such as the folks in Georgia, look to Ukraine as an inspiration? I think Ukraine and Georgia have uh, a mutual admiration, (laughs) have always had. For a very progressive part of uh, society in Georgia, the Maidan protests uh, are really a big inspiration and example. On the other hand, the previous government of Georgia, who was very, very anti-Russia and pro-US and pro-EU, are now working with a new Ukrainian government. So the former president of Georgia is now a governor of Odessa, which is one of the districts in Ukraine, and former official from the Ministry of Internal Affairs. She is now also working in the Ministry of Internal Affairs of Ukraine, and she's reforming their police system, basically. So there are few Georgians that are serving there, and so I, I guess the links are really strong and have always been, but now with the new government in Georgia, I don't know how that will continue. So sad. <laughs> but the solution, I believe, is civil society and strengthening civil society. And Russia understands that. That's why Russia has uh, designed this foreign agent uh, law. And in spite of that, we have to find creative ways how to support the civil society in this very tough time so they don't dissolve and so they don't disappear throughout the region. Ukraine is a good example how people, citizens and civil society made that revolution happen. It was not political parties. It was human beings, you know, residents of the country standing there at Maidan. So civil society played a very active role. Human rights organizations, LGBT organizations, women's rights organizations played a really big role into making this happen. So I think the only hope for the region is if um, the West 
don't turn its back to the region and continue supporting women's groups and to generally grassroots groups who can make sure that democratic values and principles are upheld and uh, human rights are respected and government does not intervene with a civil society. Do you think it's helpful for organizations in the United States to stand in solidarity with organizations in Ukraine and Georgia who are trying to support gay rights and transsexual rights? Yes, definitely. I think so. It has um it can be very isolating. Eastern Europe and former Soviet region, more and more it is becoming a very invisible region. It's totally different than the Eastern Europe. There is a huge cultural, historical and uh, contextual, political, social differences between these regions. So we can't really group it with the Western Europe. What happens is that we're overlooking uh, the realities uh, that are still there. People think that women are doing fine in Eastern Europe because it's it's Europe, you know, it's part of Europe. But that's not true. It's like really huge, huge difference between uh, the realities in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, especially for LGBT people. More and more Western European countries are adopting the same-sex marriage laws and uh, the domestic partnership laws, whereas uh, Eastern European countries are looking for legal mechanisms how to recriminalize homosexuality and how to limit LGBT people's uh, rights including also women's rights by attacking abortion and so on. So it's really a huge difference and the whole world has really been ignoring this region more and more. And it, you can feel very helpless and disempowered when you are alone. So the more people stand with you and express solidarity, it is uh, the better. I mean, uh, psychologically, emotionally, you feel stronger and motivated to do something. And also, it sometimes translates into the access to resources. And I remember in 2013, and there was a first ever peaceful march of LGBT people in Georgia, and I was part of it as an LGBT activist. And um, we were really violently attacked. It was uh, really horrible. Thousands and thousands of uh, followers of the Christian Orthodox Church attacked a handful of us. Then, in the following months, U.S. Uh, embassy showed a lot of solidarity, and uh, we had a lot of meetings. Also, before this action, uh, they they basically used their power to access the Ministry of Internal Affairs and to be basically a medium between us to create a space where we could talk directly to the officials and demand security and protection. Although not everything worked well, but the idea that we were feeling this this um, support and solidarity from the U.S. government and from the people of the United States was really encouraging and helped us go through these very tough times.